Welcome back to our new season after a summer break of our Building a Culture of Collaboration podcast. We are intending to be able to share further thoughts and ideas around building that culture of collaboration, but are super excited to be able to bring on guests at different points during the season as well, and really excited to uh, welcome Grayson James to the podcast. So we'll get started. We'll turn it over to Jen to begin our introductions. Thank you so much, leaders, for joining us. And we hope that you're able to gather some valuable learning from our guests and insights that Grayson will be able to provide. And thanks so much for joining us, Grayson. Thanks for having me. Intentional and purposeful focus on building a culture of collaboration is the secret for leaders striving to make a difference. In building a culture of collaboration, Curtis and Lorna Hewson will share simple tips, ideas, and strategies to take your organization's collaborative efforts to the next level. Thank you, Curtis and Lorna, for inviting me to be a part of building a culture of collaboration. If you're not familiar with me, I'm Jennifer Ferguson, the We Collaborate with Jigsaw Learning, and I have the opportunity to host both the Leading Collaborative Response podcast with Curtis and Lorna and our colleagues with Jigsaw Learning, as well as the Putting the Pieces Together with Jigsaw Learning podcast, where we have conversations with partners about the implementation of collaborative response in their context. I'm really excited to join this conversation, and I'm pleased to have the opportunity to introduce our very first guest on Building a Culture of Collaboration, Grayson James. Grayson is not only an author, and we'll talk about his book in a little bit, Grayson has a passion for collaborative leadership and has been working for the last 30 years with senior leadership, boards, executives, etc., around improving their collaborative performance. Now, he's very interesting because he has a martial arts background in which he's a sixth degree black belt, and he incorporates some of those principles into his executive coaching experience. His new book, Full Contact Performance, is coming out August 25th. So by the time you get this podcast, it will be available for you to listen to. So hello, Grayson, and welcome to the show. Hello there, Jennifer, and thank you for having me. Grayson, I know that originally when I was in contact with your publicist that it was Grayson James Consulting, but you are now Full Contact Institute. That's correct. Spent about 25 years as Grayson James Consultants. And then as I was, uh, I began leading workshops, calling them Full Contact Collaboration Workshops. And that's sort of a nod to the martial arts, to a, a type of training and sparring that's called full contact where you you don't hold back you usually wear protective gear and you uh you deliver your strikes and punches and kicks you know uh with a lot of power and precision hopefully and uh, i i see a lot of similarities with organizational collaboration and as i wrote the book that uh, is just soon to be coming out it's called full contact performance I realized that that actually is a, a much more, for me, interesting name for the organization. And I brought in a, a few new people to uh, work with executives and teams, coaching and consulting. So it just felt like a good transition time. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the book, and we have a copy uh, right here. I had the chance to read through uh, Grayson during the summer and discovered a really interesting educational connection. Our our audience primarily is educated. Educators, that's who we work with is educational leaders and love seeing that connection. So if you would take a, just a few moments and describe a little bit of background and what the path has been that's brought you 
um, here today to talk about the the idea of full contact um, collaboration and what you call in the book of organizational collaboration, that full contact performance. Well, uh, it was in the mid-1980s, and um, I found myself at the head of a private secondary school system, grades 6 through 12, with five campuses around the San Francisco Bay Area in different communities around the Bay. And I had no prior experience to prepare me for this experience of leading these schools. So um, I was younger uh, and less experienced than pretty much all of my faculty and staff. And it was also following a, a significant recession back in the early 80s where the school had lost about a third of its enrollment. So mm. a lot of challenges, personal and environmental. And I think the there were two things that really helped me during this period. Um, one was posture. Mm. I had learned how to stand up straight. It sounds so ridiculously mundane and irrelevant. But I later came to realize that just being able to carry yourself with at least the semblance of poise and dignity is important. Mm -hmm. And it actually communicates something to people. Now, I didn't always feel that way. I didn't always feel poised and dignified. <laughs> a lot of the time I was scrambling internally and felt very inadequate, you know, felt like I was faking it. And it took me a couple of years of, you know, really hard work, a kind of desperate, desperately difficult learning before I started to feel more comfortable. But looking back, I realized that really helped me. And it also dovetailed really well with uh, what I have since come to see as the importance of the body in everything we do, in leadership, in learning, in just being a human being in the world. We have a body. Everywhere we go, we go with our body. Every conversation we have is an embodied conversation between somebody with a body, in a body, and somebody else, and other people in bodies. And the the way we are uh, living in this body has a big impact on those conversations and those relationships. I didn't know this at the time, but uh, it's since become something that I pay attention to and I work with a lot. I, I was just going to comment on that idea of poise that, you know, that physical state that you're in has such an impact on your psychological well-being and really thinking about when I can poise myself uh, physically, then I am preparing my mind for what's to come. So I, I really appreciate that that comment and that reflection on the interconnection between your physical being and your mental well-being. I really like the way you put that, and I'm glad you said it that way. We tend to think of the, the mind as something that we carry around on top of the body, and like there is a relationship. We know there's some connection there somewhere, but it's not entirely clear. And uh, I think that they are not inseparable. It's a continuum. We are a, a mind. We are a mind and a body, a body with a mind. And one of the principles that I work with is we, uh, when we work with ourselves physically, we improve our mental performance. When we work with ourselves mentally, we improve our physical performance. And you look at any elite athlete, they are working hard mentally. This is never just a physical endeavor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the same with uh, people who really perform at high levels mentally, 
they have to work with their body too. I love the um, the Queen's Gambit got me to to look into just what goes into being a chess master. It's a heck of a lot of bodily effort. Mm -hmm. I'll expend just thousands and thousands of calories in the course of a game. The way they are in their body, the shape of the body, what they're feeling in their body has a big impact on how they're able to perform mentally. Love it. So you started so talking about an individual sport with chess. And I think chess is a sport because exercising the brain is like exercising the muscles and the rest of your body. But I mean, we really want to talk about collaboration. And so when we think about collaboration, we think about that working with other people. Yeah. But in your book, you talk about it being an internal art and you yeah. talk about it being something that's all about me. So you yeah. want to elaborate on those concepts when it comes to collaboration? Yeah, it seems like a little bit of a paradox yeah. when, you're, when you first come upon it and you talk about that paradox in the book. Yeah, we think that, well, we're collaborating with all these people out there. So it's really about how to get those people to collaborate better. Yeah. Because they hold the key to my success. If they don't collaborate well, then this project isn't going to go well. This initiative this the culture that I'm trying to affect as a leader isn't going to go well. And I come to see that it's kind of flipped around the other way. So when we hit obstacles in collaboration, our first impulse is generally to try and strategize how to change those people, how to get them to be better listeners, mm. how to get them to cooperate better. They're just not collaborating. If they would only collaborate better, this thing would, would be super fantastic. So then we're all creative problem solvers. We apply all of this creative problem solving uh, ability to solving the problem of those people out there. Mm. So think about it for a minute. How do you feel when the person you're sitting across the table from is working on trying to fix you or change you or make you better? Yeah doesn't probably go over so well. None of us want to be fixed or, or changed. What we want is we want to feel listened to. We want to feel respected. We want to be uh, asked to share our thoughts, our points of view, our feelings, perhaps. And to be met, at least, not always agreed with. We don't have to have everything we say accepted or agreed with. But we do care about being met. We want to be at least listened to. So that's true of everybody else. And the other thing I, I came to see is that while we're sitting here on our side of the table thinking, God, if only this person would shut up and listen for a change, <laughs> they are probably having the same thoughts about me. Mm -hmm. We're all sitting around the table wishing that everybody else would stop being the, the roadblock to our collaborative performance, to our success. So what that has told me and shown me is that our job is actually to shift our attention, take our attention off of those people as the alleged problem and recognize that there's something about me and how I'm thinking, the stories I may be telling myself, maybe what's going on in my body, the level of tension I have in my body, my emotional state that I need to work on. And that if I can do that, if I can get clearer in myself and stop trying to project all of this stuff onto everybody else around me, it just may happen 
that people might be more open to what I have to say. They may be more willing to actually listen to me. And this is a, another one of the principles that I talk about in the book. They're kind of connected, connectedness and reciprocity. You walk into a staff meeting, and as soon as you walk into the room, you're connected with the people around you. It's unavoidable. We have these bodies. We have these really finely tuned nervous systems, and we we notice things. We pick up cues. We notice somebody's posture. We notice how they stand, how they sit. Are they pushed back? All of these things. And we're responding to it. Most of the time, we're not even aware of it. It just happens because we have these bodies and nervous systems. But what if we can become more aware of that and realize we're, we're connected and we're also, we tend to mirror one another. Yeah. There's this reciprocity principle and it shows up in a lot of research across different fields that, you know, some people refer to them as mirror neurons. And that's why we tend to, to experience what we look at and what we see tends to create a, a mirror-like dimension in ourselves. But studies of trust and oxytocin also show us that the more trusting we are of others, the more trusting they're likely to be of us. So we put these principles together and we realize, well, I may have a lot more impact by working on myself and making myself more comfortable, more open, more curious, truly curious, not just going through the motions of active listening because I took that in a workshop and they say that's what you do to be effective. That never works. I don't think those techniques work. I think they backfire most of the time. We know when we're being actively listened to by somebody as a technique. And we know there's a big difference than when somebody is really interested in what we have to say. And that's not a technique. That's a way of being. And it's a way of being that we all have access to. But we kind of put things in our way. Fear, a sense of pressure stories about the other person or, or characterizations of, well, this person never listens. So I just, I, why should I li listen to them? I just need to get my agenda across and try and get them to go along with it. So we stay polarized. We, we create more defensiveness, not less. But if we shift our attention to ourselves and work with our own nervous systems, we have much greater likelihood of actually positively impacting the people around us and improving the conversation. So you may notice, I just lowered the tone of my voice in the last 30 seconds or so as I was talking, because I started realizing I was getting a little amped up, but I also realized it wasn't, it was getting a little uncomfortable. So you may have noticed something in yourselves, maybe listeners of this podcast may also have noticed some change in their own body as my breathing slowed and I started speaking from a deeper place in my body. So this is something we can all do. It's nothing mysterious. And it's also not woo-woo or, or airy-fairy. I feel that it's it's deeply practical just because it works. I love that idea of awareness of uh, your own body, the awareness of uh, you physically in, as you engage with, with people. I also, Grayson, you had talked a little bit about you know the assumptions that we have coming into meetings and sometimes we assume or you know we we make those own suppositions for ourselves about how people are going to interact within meetings and uh, we often talk about you know in the education world uh, assuming competence that as we engage in collaboration with educators that that we come with that idea that 
everyone at the table is ready to engage, that they are excited about being able to talk about, you know, meeting the needs of students mm -hmm. and uh, being able to really interact in that positive way. And we make that assumption at the beginning so that we can set the tone and we can ensure that you know, we don't have those things interplaying in our in the back of our mind about, you know, who is going to engage and and who is not. I think that's great. Yeah, I, I think um, I see it very similarly. And, and I often will tell myself and say it to the team or group that I'm working with, just to remind us all, and it's for myself as well, that uh, we're all here because we want things to go well. We all want to succeed. Even if we're unskillful or confused or may not be quite clear about what we're thinking in the moment, we still want to do our very best and we want things to go well. And if, if I can remember that, it just allows me to stay more open and more curious about what other people have to say. That I, I think that's a, a great practice, assuming competence. So do you want to talk a little bit about, because I, I really love this idea of focusing on self and we often talk that when as educators when we're leading conversations about students how do we focus on what we refer to as our locus of control that we're really trying to identify what could we do we, we talk about this idea of raising a key issue do you want to speak to that and lead yeah, to a question sure. for Grayson so you know the the challenge of being able to support students and then understanding that sometimes there are a lot of factors that contribute to particular <laughs> situations that we're in but we we find a little bit of a parallel in your work around what you would call declaration and we'd love to be able to hear you speak a little bit about that idea of what is declaration in the work that you're doing and how can you move leaders past that uh, that idea of declaration? Well, and we hear that as an example of somebody saying, well, we, we're, we're, we're going to talk about how to meet Grayson's needs, but Grayson, oh, he's just, he's lazy. He's just unmotivated. And, and how do we shift that to really get back past the declaration and moving to helping team members move to something that we that can, can impact do and that right. you, yeah that there can be action around and moving into that positive frame as well well first i want to thank you for inviting me to be on the podcast even though i'm lazy <laughs> grayson is lazy is a declaration technically speaking that the linguistic act that we've just made is a declaration. Yeah. What's interesting about declarations is they sound grammatically identical oftentimes to statements of fact or what are technically referred to as assertions. So you could say Grayson is lazy. Grayson is five feet, 11 and a half inches tall. They sound the same, right? But they're completely different animals. Mm -hmm. They're not the same at all. Yeah. One, the assertion that I'm 5'11 and a half is something that you can all verify. Any independent observer could put a tape measure there and say, yep, he's 5'11 or he's just 5'11 and he's fudging a little bit to try and seem a little taller. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's still the, the linguistic action is the same, yeah. but we often confuse and this happens everywhere. We all know the difference between facts and opinions, but in, in actual usage, 
we we mix them all up and we get confused and we treat statements like Grayson is lazy as if it's a fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for Curtis, you may have experienced something in me uh, as my teacher that has you say, yeah, Grayson is lazy. Why? Because he doesn't do things the way people who I associate not being lazy do. Mm-hmm. But to somebody else, I might appear very productive. Mm-hmm. I might really diligent when it's something that I care about. And that actually happens to be how I went through school. Mm-hmm. I would get A's and D's. I had no interest in things that I had no interest in, and I just didn't do anything about them. But when I was interested in something, I would just immerse myself. So I was lazy. That was a declaration that many of my teachers would say, and they could point to things as if it was a fact. But to others, I was not at all lazy. I was the opposite of lazy. I was driven. Mm-hmm. Or were they actually facts? They're always interpretations. They're declarations. The thing about declarations is they are invented. They don't live in the realm of truth or falsity. But when we relate to them as if they're true, story's over. You're going to, from this point forward, relate to Grayson as lazy, just as you would, well, he needs a jacket size that works for five and 11 and a half, but they're completely different. We know how uh, research in education, how important teachers' expectations are. The problem is that when we make declarations and don't realize it, we characterize a student or a colleague, as lazy, as uncollaborative, as you name it, we believe that what we've said is an accurate portrayal, i.e. a statement of fact, end of story. That's where our way of relating to this person ends. From this point forward, we are going to expect them to behave consistent with what we just told ourselves about them. Mm -hmm. That's not fair to the student. It's not fair to the teacher. Yeah. So this is why it's so important to be really clear, to have awareness about how are we using language? Our words are important. It's interesting to to hear Grayson talk because, I mean, students, teachers, leaders, but children, parents, right? I'm thinking about conversations I had with my husband this week where I may have made a declaration or two. (laughs) Yeah, we all do it. Absolutely. Declarations are not a problem. It's not something we should avoid. Because we make declarations all the time from, I want to I go back to school and, and get my master's, to I love chocolate ice cream, to I care about you, to I'm sorry, I apologize, I don't know how to do this. Those are all declarations. We can't live without them. The key is to understand the distinctions between declarations and, say, assertions, and so- to not box ourselves into a false belief that we're telling ourselves something that is true that simply can't be true. I love ice uh, chocolate ice cream isn't a true or false thing. It's just a personal preference. So in your mind then, uh, and as I was reading through the book, this really stuck with me, that idea of how declarations can have considerable impact when we're trying to collaborate and work effectively together. Could you expand on that a little bit, Grayson? Uh, how about if I give an example? Yeah, perfect. I'll I'll give an example that I love. Uh, I I wrote about it in the book. Five or six years ago, I was working with a leadership team on Cape Cod in this beautiful resort setting. And it's about 18 leaders of this services organization. And they were all complaining about how their people, the people on their teams who, who they supervised, 
uh, were not showing up and embodying the changed roles that this leadership team had designed and developed nine, 12 months earlier. And they'd done a lot of work with their team to, hey, this is your new role. This is what we want to be seeing. Here's how we want you to talk about yourselves. How do we want you to relate to your colleagues and your customers? And it just wasn't happening. So I, I sat down and, and I, I started by asking, well, why do you think this isn't happening? You all put so much time and thought into this and you designed very you know thoughtful cultural changes that you wanted to see happen. I, I wrote down verbatim what on a flip chart what they gave me. And after the 13th explanation, many of which involved complexity, like, well, it's really complex. There's so many complex factors affecting them. They some some were characterizations like, well, they don't really care. They're pulled in a lot of directions. Some are just lazy. Some will never get it. You 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 hear those declarations, those characterizations mm -hmm. in there. After the 13th explanation, I stopped and I said, okay, so you've now given me 13 different reasons why your people aren't doing what you spent a lot of time working with them to be able to do. How about we do a little role play and see what may be going on? So we did a role play where um, one of them was themselves in the leadership role and one of them was one of their people. And we did three role plays all in those roles where the leader talked about with their, their supervisee what they were expecting to see and how important it was and so forth. In every one of those three role plays, it turns out by their own reckoning, wow, I actually, I don't even know how to talk about this. I'm completely unclear on what I'm asking you to, to be clear about. <laughs> me pointing it out. This was their peers pointing it out. They said, wow, as I'm watching Steve work with Sue, it's really clear. And then Steve would say, God, I, I'm lost. So it became clear that they had been coming up with all sorts of stories, characterizations, making declarations about their people and the environment and what was getting in their people's way, treating all of those declarations like true facts. And what it was doing, it was keeping them from actually looking at themselves and their own role in this right. time. So after the third role play, I said, okay, uh, it seems pretty clear from what you're all saying that the problem may not so much be with your people. They're probably smart, creative, thoughtful people just like you are. Yeah. You wouldn't have hired them if they weren't. What's going on is you are clearly not clear on what you're asking them to be clear on. So let's focus on that. And they began referring, it, it, some of them said, wow, this is a complete shift of context. They began referring this over the next couple of days of the retreat as the, the major contextual shift that took place in them. And they began having entirely different conversations where they would challenge each other good-naturedly. They started laughing at each other and at themselves. And before that, they'd been pretty uptight and pretty tense about how do we get our people to get with the program. Now it everything had changed. And it was, how are we going to get, how are we going to help each other really get clear on what we're doing here? That was a, a C, a, you know, a C state change. Well, and that's we find that so critical in the work that we do too, yeah. of how do we internalize and think around what can we do? Again, that locus of control. Yeah. That becomes, a, again, a shift in the conversation, but one that 
can lead to really powerful action and next steps. So again, I come back to the book. Um, you point to the role attention, and you've talked about this a little bit already, how, how important attention is in effective collaboration. What advice would you give leaders trying to ensure attention and focus for others in the meeting? And I know one of the first comments is probably going to go, well, focus back on self, <laughs> right? And others. But how would you do that with a if a leader is saying, well, I focused on me, but I, I just can't get people where I'd like them to be or engaged and, and giving that attention that you say is so critical. There's a, uh, a term that I use called meta moves. A meta, we all know what meta means. It means to go beyond something, to step outside of something. And when we go beyond, we step outside of a current way of thinking or a current so concept, it allows us to see things that we couldn't see when we're immersed in the middle of it all. So in the example you just gave, one way of thinking about how to use your attention is, okay, I've made the first move of shifting my attention off of everybody else for a moment. And this can happen in a split second. And it, it doesn't have to be, it's nothing that we have to make a big deal about. I've looked at myself and I, I realize uh, I'm not satisfied with the level of conversation or the degree of focus or whatever it might be here. Maybe what I can do is I can raise my hand and say, hey, folks, I'd like to share an observation or a, an opinion, a feeling I have about how we're, we're having this conversation. I don't feel satisfied with the, the quality of the conversation right now. And I'm not blaming you. There could well be things that I'm doing that's contributing to that. In fact, I'm sure there are, and I may be blind to them. But what I would like to see, what I feel is missing is this, or maybe if we can put all our phones away or let's take a break, go take care of anything that might be on your mind and let's come back in and just sit down for 45 minutes of focused conversation. Mm. That's a meta move that we can make. It's important when you make a meta move, not to lay all your stuff on them. You know, like, hey, I want to tell you all the bad things you're doing that's keeping us from having a good conversation. That's not what I'm talking about. It's staying true to the, the spirit of locus of control. It's the only locus of control I have is within me. And I'm just being transparent about that. Now, is it going to work every time and with everybody? Probably not. Nothing does. At least I will have, um, I'll feel good about that I've come clean and I've spoken up I've made a leadership move, a personal leadership move about sharing what I see going on. I've done it in a non-threatening, non-punitive, mm -hmm. humiliating way. And now I let the world respond to me. And very often when we can really do that and deliver that kind of a, a statement cleanly and clearly in ourselves, it can change a lot. And even if it doesn't change things, we're going to stand up a little taller because we've done our best. We've expressed our positive intent, and I think that's true as a teacher. When we, if we know we've really done everything we can and taken responsibility, we know where that locus of control lives, and we've acted from that place and not projected all of our fears and concerns and anxieties onto that student, then we can let the student do what they do. And we realize, you know, really it's his or her life, not mine to control. That's what the locus of control is all about. It's mm -hmm. finding us what we really can influence and what we just can't. I like the way you described that pause, right? We talk about teachable moments in the classroom, 
right? Just taking that moment to pause and collaboration is a learned skill. Not everybody walks around into a, into a meeting around a table and knows immediately how to collaborate. So just that taking that time for that teachable moment and as a leader, opening up at that point with, okay, well, I'm going to be vulnerable here because this is kind of what I was expecting. And maybe I didn't communicate that clearly at first, which as a leader is not always easy to do and admit that you made a mistake or that sort of thing. So Grayson, I know you wrote an article for the World Financial Review that speaks to the idea of how leaders can avoid creating crises and how they respond to them. So what advice would you give to leaders that might be hesitant to express that vulnerability when collaborating with others? Uh, let me go back to um, my experience as the leader of the school system back in, in my 20s. Um, because I think it's relevant to what you're talking about. I had no choice but to humble myself. I could not be invulnerable, no matter how much I wish I could be. I simply did not have the, the tools, the, the experience, the smarts at the time to, to lead these schools without really uh, acknowledging that I don't know what the heck I'm doing. <laughs> it forced me to ask for help and to acknowledge, hey, I really don't know what, how to think about this. How are you thinking about this? That was an important lesson for me because I, I saw how people responded to that. They wanted to help. Now, some people, you know, thought, what is this rookie doing here? Why am I working for this guy? I know that was the case with some people, but other people, you know, they, well, this is, this is the guy who's leading the schools right now, and I can either stay or I can go. And he seems to be genuine in his interest in how I'm thinking. So they helped, and most of the people helped. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the word vulnerability. I think it's really helpful to reframe that whole notion of vulnerability. Um, one way we can do that is to recognize that we all have fears. We all want to appear smart, intelligent, thoughtful, competent. And when we don't feel that way, one of our first impulses is to cover it up and try and not let anybody see that. And that's okay. That's fine. I, under I understand that personally. I've often felt that way. But if what if we can hit the pause button, as you just said a minute ago, and with ourselves say, okay, first of all, what is it that I'm really committed to here? Towards what future, towards what end am I in this leadership role in the first place? Am I convening this meeting? Am I having this conversation with these parents or with this teacher or whomever it might be? And what will best serve that future, that commitment? Oftentimes when I get, when I remind myself why I'm really here, it's much bigger than me and my feelings in this moment, my feelings of risk or fear or embarrassment, but sometimes that may not be enough. So um, what I can realize is that everybody else has those feelings too at times. And going back to the principle of reciprocity, what if I can simply focus on what is most likely to open up the conversation here and make it a more thoughtful, self-reflective conversation? Ah, it's me being more thoughtful and self-reflective myself. 
And maybe I can, by being more transparent about what's really going on with me, that's actually not making myself more vulnerable. That's actually being skillful. Now, let me, let me draw on the martial arts for a second here. In martial arts, and it's true of any martial art, and I, I only have experience in a couple of them, but I know this is true from talking with many other and watching many other martial arts. It's true for athletes. It's true for dancers. It's true for anybody that works with their body. Your power lies in your alignment. The physical alignment and the uh, harmonious coordination of all of the different parts of yourself, your legs, working with your core, working with your shoulders, your arms, your hands, your focus. If we're not aligned, we don't have power. We can't do what we need to do. We're going to lack precision. We're going to lack power. We won't be effective. It's not skillful. So athletes and martial artists, dancers, they spend years working on their alignment. Here's the parallel. For me, in my mind, we as leaders often believe that our power lies in putting on some front of power, of having all of the answers, of appearing to be unfazed by challenges. We don't get scared. We are the, the rock for everybody else. But I actually find that doesn't work. It, for one, it's extraordinarily unhealthy for the, the leader who holds themselves to that standard. But it also doesn't really work for other people. It makes us brittle. And people pick up on, when, on our tension. We have to work hard. We have to get really tense to try and maintain that facade. And it's not where our power lives. If instead I can be fully aligned in the sense of what I'm feeling and how I'm behaving and what I'm saying, if they're aligned, that is actually much more powerful. And people respond to that. They appreciate it and they say, oh yeah, he doesn't have the answers, but you know what? He's not giving us BS either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Acknowledging it. And maybe we can step in and exert our leadership to help. And then we're a team of leaders solving a problem instead of one person trying to act like they have all of the answers or they are not concerned or anxious about what's going on. So again, the reciprocity, if I can be fully aligned in myself, I'm more powerful, I'm more at peace with myself. Plus I, I invite other people to join me in this creative collaborative space. And I think that's what a leadership team ultimately mm -hmm. is about. It's not about everybody circling around the great, invincible, all-knowing, omniscient one. It's kind of the opposite of that, especially these days. There's just no way that any one person can know enough. There's just too much information, too much data, too many quickly moving parts in this world. We need collaborative teammates in order to, to really thrive and succeed. You're, I, uh, I you're singing that. our song. Yeah, <laughs> we, we talk quite a bit about Superman is dead. <laughs> that, that idea of the superhero or the super leader, the super teacher, that uh, really the essence of collaboration is getting down to that place where we can be honest about uh, the things that are happening, that we can be uh, in a state of sharing mm -hmm. our understanding and sharing our lack of understanding and uh, being able to work through those things together. But truly understanding that collaborative team is 
definitely bigger than just the sum of the parts it's together we can reach where one person cannot go on their own well and great power in establishing that as a whole team that that whatever we're facing whatever initiative we're working on we're doing that together mm -hmm. and that we're going to problem solve through that together knowing that everyone has a part and everyone is valued around that table and no one above anyone else it's hard Love to it. beat so we do often discuss how the meeting space environment impacts that collaborative conversation what would advice would you give leaders when they're thinking about the physical environment that they're creating for what you call the learning conversation i, I really love that that concept of the learning conversation i think first it's helpful to remember that um everybody in the meeting has a body bodies have needs bodies respond well to certain environmental factors and don't respond as well to others so for me uh, i think it's really helpful to have natural light where you can to have fresh air to have comfortable chairs or be able to move around a lot so i i'm always um, have meetings with boards of directors that are used to sitting around very expensive mahogany tables i ask us to meet in a a room with no furniture and we just sit uh, chairs around in a circle. It's impossible to see everybody else in an important meeting when you're all lined up on sides, just all you yeah. can see are the people sitting across from you. It sounds kind of um, trivial perhaps, but I, I find it enormously important. And you don't have this big piece of furniture sitting in front of you. Maybe it's just metaphorically, but I don't think so. I think it's actually, there is this big thing in front of us, between us making sure that we don't go too long in meetings without breaks. I ask folks to turn their devices off unless they're expecting their spouse to go into labor or their mom is in our room or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, in which case I say, it's fine to leave your phone on, you know, on silence. And if you need to take it, we understand we all have emergencies, just step outside the room. Mm -hmm. Don't try and, you know, um, hide it from anybody else. That just makes everybody wonder what's going on. It's distracting. So simple things like that, we're human beings, we have human needs, and let's make it so we can all look at each other in the eye without straining. I think setting context at the beginning, reminding folks, why are we here? What is it that is bigger than all of us that we really wanna talk about and accomplish? I also like to remind people that for a good learning conversation, for instance, you don't know where it's going to go. Good learning conversations don't have predetermined endpoints other than that we're going to learn. We're going to leave here having realized something or gotten something that we hadn't understood or gotten before this. And if we, we can remember that, and sometimes I remind folks a lot, hey, it's, they're not always comfortable. They're not linear conversations. Sometimes we take digressions. When we do, let's just somebody raise their hand and say, is this the digression we want to be taking right now? and that the group can decide, yeah, we think it's really important before we come back, or no, let's take that offline. Let's stay on what we're talking about. Those kinds of little moves, you know, kind of meeting hygiene, really make a big difference. And I, folks appreciate it, and they also perform better. Grace, and that whole idea of those little things that we think, you know, often don't pay attention to the environment or how we're placing chairs, they 
truly do, and we've found this in our work, 100%. truly have great impact. And I, I love your suggestion of not having a table at all, but, and, and we would, we do this same thing, <laughs> being able to have people in a circle. There is such power in arranging people in that circle so that everyone is visible to each other. And it creates that open environment of, you know, how are we going to interact with each other throughout this time we have together? It's clear we share a lot in common. We yeah. do. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I hear a lot of things that, that Curtis and Lorna have talked about over time. And when you talk about that environment, it's not just the physical, but also the contextual environment that goes in with that. So that setting expectations, I mean, we talk about co-creating norms all the time, right? So that the purpose of coming together and the understanding and clarity of when we're here, this is how we're going to act and react with one another. So I have a question for you, Grayson, because I've also talked to Curtis and Lauren a lot about transitioning people into and out of different contexts in our educational realm. What advice might you give to a leader who wants to create this collaborative culture that will transcend the shifts so that it's sustainable as people transition in and out? The answer is embedded in your questions in the following way that if we really uh, pay attention to what we're doing right now with this team and building a culture that really truly embodies the principles and the norms that we all feel are important and helpful, the future will take care of itself. That people who come into that will pick it up. They'll pick it up quickly. But if it's not really embedded, if folks are sort of, they entertain the concepts of collaborative conversation and active thinking, the techniques, but they, they're not really doing them so much, then you're always gonna be struggling. And the new people will come in and they'll, they'll feel it, they'll sense it. I hear the words, it's like the mottos, you know, the value statements on the corporate lobby wall. Now they always sound perfect. But then when you have a conversation with the person in the mailroom, or you, the way you're treated by, you know, the CEO's administrative assistants, you, you get a different story. So really focus on right here, right now, what are we building with this team? And I think the future takes care of itself. People who come into these cultures, even if they've come from a really different place, they'll either quickly, you know, kind of click right in, or they'll self-select out, or it'll be clear to you as the leader, hey, maybe this is not such a good fit and you can have a conversation. So that's, I would say, don't worry about the future. The future will take care of itself. Just really take care of what you're doing right here and now with people. Well, certainly appreciate that, Grayson. And really want to thank you for your insights that are being shared today, not only in our podcast, but again, that upcoming book. In the show notes, we will have a, a link to your, your organization the Full Contact Institute, as well as the new book. We wish you all the greatest of success with the that book coming out and being able to share your such understandings. Great, such a great conversation, Grayson. We so much appreciate being able to connect with you and, and see some of those parallels between our work. So thank you so much for joining us.
Oh, it's entirely mutual. I really appreciate the opportunity. Great to be talking with you all. And so I get to have the last word normally, Grayson. So I'm going to give it to you to give your book one last plug. Who should read it? Why should they read it? Uh, Anybody who's interested in how to have better conversations and collaborate better with your colleagues, with your, your teammates, with the people who work for you or with your bosses, Although it's written in a, an organizational context, it all of this stuff applies to our personal relationships as well. It's often harder to do with the people you love, but it's all applicable. So I think if you have any curiosity about how you can perform better collaboratively, you might find something of interest in the book. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for your time. Thank you all. For more on collaborative response, visit jigsawlearning.ca or join the JL Insider to receive access to newly added resources and content. Make sure to follow us on social media. Subscribe to the podcast and the Jigsaw Learning YouTube channel to access past and upcoming episodes. Join us again as we continue to share tips, ideas, and strategies to help you continue to refine your culture of collaboration.